0: Hello and welcome to IR Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. I'm Martin Zubko. Today I'm interested in Fukushima, a disaster which happened in 2011. Nowadays we have a discussion about the radioactive water being released or supposed to be released uh, in upcoming days in Japan. So I'm joined with uh, Maxim Polery from Canada. Hello Maxime.
1: Hello Martin, thank you for having me here.
0: Maxime Polary is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at Université Laval in Canada, Quebec. As an anthropologist of science and technology, he studies the governance of disasters and public health crises. His current research projects focus on the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster, the COVID-19 pandemic, and global epidemic alerting systems. Dr. Pollery is a network affiliate at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University, where he was previously a MacArthur Nuclear Security pre- and post-doctoral fellow. He is also a member of EPI-AI project, a Canadian-UK Artificial Intelligence grant initiative that studies digital disease surveillance, as well as a member of Mitate Lab, an international research program on Fukushima issues. We are interested in international relations, so can you please elaborate on diplomatic tensions that arose between Japan and other countries as a result of nuclear disaster? What What can we observe, or what can we know about this uh, phenomenon?
1: Uh, Yes, of course. So obviously, uh, a nuclear disaster always creates a lot of uh, diplomatic tensions. And, you know, initially there was a lot of uh, negative tensions with uh, Japan's neighbors. So perhaps most famously, uh, Korea and China. And, you know, these tensions really rose around radioactive contamination. Uh, the first one was food safety, for instance. So after the disaster, basically you had the uh, South Korea that banned some imports of Japanese food, and the import uh, roughly fell by seventy-five percent in two thousand eleven, which you know is obviously a huge number. So. Food safety created a lot of tension between these countries because not everybody has necessarily the same inspection procedures. They don't necessarily have the same standards in regard to radiation safety. And you know, beyond food safety, another uh, point of tension was the 2020 Olympics. Uh, for instance, uh, there was a lot of concern about radiation uh, that came back when Japan was chosen to uh, host the 2020 Olympics, which were eventually delayed because of the COVID-19. But you had, for instance, uh, politicians, uh, civil groups that wanted to boycott the Olympic uh, because of safety concern over uh, radiation. Uh, there were athletes, for instance, that uh, talk about uh, food safety and there were talks about providing Korean-made food during the Olympics. And, well, most recently, you know, something that we've been hearing a lot in the news is the announced to release the wastewater in the Pacific Ocean. So, right now, you know, we've got Korea that is very worried about the impacts of the release of uh, resistive wastewater because, you know, they're very close to the uh, Japanese archipelago. Uh, there's the agriculture minister, for instance, that says that the import ban of Fukushima food will remain in place. Um, Beyond Korea, you also have China that has been highly critical of this plan to release wastewater in the Pacific. Uh, You've got foreign ministry, uh, spokesperson who claimed that the Pacific Ocean is not a a sewer for Japan to hold contaminated water. So I think that this wastewater issue will really cause a lot of further diplomatic tensions in regard to global seafood exports. And basically, when we look at the history of these countries' relationship, uh, these kinds of tensions are not really surprising. Um, you know, some, some people might know Korea used to be a colony of the Empire of Japan. Uh, China faces a share of war city from Japan during the first half of the 20th century. So basically, those are historical scares that are still highly present and that are going to merge with nuclear-related tensions. So we can see that we have very specific aspects of a nuclear disaster that can be strategically mobilized, often for geopolitical reasons. But beyond that, also, it's important to say that um, the diplomatic tensions have shifted a lot since 2011, and that this shift have also depend on who was in power. So, for instance, in the beginning of the disaster, Japan was ruled by uh, Naoto Kan, and also by Yoshihiko Noda, who both belonged to the Democratic Party of Japan. And basically, the Democratic Party of Japan was uh, is a central uh, centrist political party. Uh, now, Token was known to be able to get support from the Chinese and the South Korean leaders, and both of these leaders have shown a lot of support for the disaster in the beginning. Uh, they were the first foreign minister to actually come to Fukushima, and you know, there was a picture of the three of them, you know, eating cucumbers to show that the food is safe in Fukushima. So we see that diplomatic tensions are far from being either white or black. There's there's a lot of contradiction. On one point you can have a food ban, and on the other point you have no prime minister sharing pictures together. Um, The negative tension were worse when the prime minister Shinzo Abe came in power in 2012. So Shinzo Abe was from the liberal democratic party which is a, a much more conservative party. It also has a history of tense diplomatic tension with China and with South Korea. And it really did not help that uh, Shinzo Abe visited the Yasukuni Shrine during his uh, prime uh, ministership. So for those that don't know what the Yasukuni Shrine is, it's basically a shrine in Japan that honored the war that and it's a, it's a very controversial place because basically you have war criminals that are buried there. And every time um, some sort of Japanese elite go and visit this place, it usually angers South Korea and China because it's seen as a symbol of Japan's past military aggression. So that's a visit that really did not help to ease the tension that the nuclear disaster had brought. But you also have a lot of uh, productive ties of productivity that came from this disaster. So the nuclear catastrophe also allowed Japan, for instance, to strengthen its ties with his ally, most notably the United States. Uh, you know, some might remember the Operation Tomodachi, Tomodachi, which means uh, which means a friendship in Japanese, which was a disaster relief operation by the US Armed Force. So that's uh, an operation that basically strengthened the link between Japan and the U.S. And especially in a context where there's a lot of Japanese citizens that have uh, historically criticized the presence of the U.S. armed force in Okinawa. So an island that is situated south of Japan where there's a lot of United States uh, Army base. Um, also, if we think in terms of decommission, for instance, Well, the decommission of the crippled power plants is going to take decades and decades to uh, do. So this is something that's going to require the presence of international experts and of organizations like the uh, International uh, Atomic Energy Agency. Uh, so I'm pretty sure that this is going to you know, promote diplomatic relationship between Japan and his broader agency, which are usually closely tied with um, liberal democracy in the world. So that's about what I have for, for the first uh, question.
0: Was there any protest or reaction of people who are Koreans living in Japan, like internally, I mean? or for instance, Chinese community in Japan, maybe some international community in Japan.
1: I haven't seen a lot of anger or frustration from internal community. For instance, if we talk about uh, Korean living in Japan, well a lot are, for instance, uh, you know, Zainichi Korean, which their parents came in Japan and they've been raised often in a Japanese environment. Uh, most of the time, you know, they don't even have uh, their Korean surname. They've adopted Japanese name. Some don't even speak uh, Japanese. And, you know, immigration, you know, as opposed to the United States, for instance, um, it's not a very powerful force in the internal politics of Japan. The number is just not high enough to really you know, warrant some sort of um, political resistance that you could have in order much more perhaps multi-ethnic country. That's not to say that Japan is perfectly homogenous. I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stereotypes surrounding this homogeneity, which is not true. I mean, there's homogeneity within Japan, with uh, the Hainu in Hokkaido, with the Okinawan. there's um, lots of uh, Chinese immigrants, Finzen immigrants, and so on. But in terms of their political weight, it's perhaps not the same that you will... Have in other countries. So, from my own experience, I might be wrong about that, but I've not seen a lot of very specific uh, political movement coming from Korean or Chinese minority uh, in
0: Japan. Okay. How did the Fukushima disaster influence international policies on nuclear energy? I mean, globally, not only in Japan.
1: So, Basically, before Fukushima, you know, Japan really had one of the most well-respected nuclear and radiological scientific communities in the world. Um, they were really part of a nuclear power industry revival that was known as the nuclear renaissance. So, you know, before uh, Fukushima, other nuclear disasters like Three Mile Island or Chernobyl were, you know, slowly being put in the past. Uh, Chernobyl, for instance, was uh, starting to be globally depicted as an exceptional disaster, which was you know, the, the result of poor science or communist ideology by the Soviet Union. So, around the early 2000s, 2000, 2010, we're really on the verge of what some people have called a nuclear renaissance. Uh, you had a lot of different countries that wanted to develop more nuclear power. Uh, Japan also had this ambition. Uh, You know, before the disaster, the part of nuclear energy uh, in Japan, electricity was about 30%. And basically, the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry really wanted to up that to close to 50%. So the disaster in general really put a halt to this nuclear renaissance, you know, not just in Japan, but also globally. Uh, you know, one of the most famous influence, for instance, you know, might be Germany. Uh, it's a disaster that you know, partly influenced Germany's decision to phase out from nuclear power. And there are other countries that uh, are usually very much pro-nuclear, like France or the United States, uh, began to reinforce their own nuclear safety by trying to learn from this disaster. So globally, it's a disaster. It really impaired the dream for views that wishes to see further nuclear power in the world. Um, you know, Japan was at the top of the food chain in regard to nuclear science. Uh, it was a disaster. It was never supposed to happen, according to members of the nuclear industry. Um, After the disaster, there's some people that have tried again to say that this was an exceptional case, citing, for instance, the unique geography of Japan, a landscape that sprung to earthquake and tsunami. Um, There's a lot of people who doubt that, you know, perhaps like Germany, Japan will phase out from nuclear power. After all, you know, there's a rich history of anti nuclear activism in Japan, But, you know, as time has shown us, Japan has not forgone nuclear power. And I think there's, you know, basically four reasons for why uh, non-nuclear Japan is not going to happen. So, one of the first reasons regarding this is uh, energy independence. So, historically speaking, Japan has always deployed vast resources to make nuclear energy uh, a national priority. Especially for a country that was lacking natural resource, so for the Japanese elite, nuclear power was much more than electricity. It was always a symbol of the energy independence for Japan. Um, even nowadays, you know, if we think about trade disputes, if we think about the long-term tense relations with uh, the neighbors of Japan, there's a lot of experts who believe that Japan needs to decrease its dependence on external energy suppliers. So lots of people claim that nuclear power should be fully restarted as they believe that it provides a stable and Japanese-made energy supply. Um, Second reason for why Japan might not abandon nuclear power is the tropes of clean energy. So before the disaster, uh, nuclear power was depicted as the clean energy of the future. There was even a sign that literally said this uh, in Fukushima. But you know, the release of radioactive pollutant after the disaster has you know, completely tarnished the stroke of nuclear power as a source of clean energy. But you know even nowadays, proponents of nuclear power are resorting to a similar rhetoric, uh, which is based on the specter of global warming. So, for instance, following the moratorium of uh, nuclear power after 2011, you have the Japanese elite, you have scholars who argue that emission of carbon dioxide have increased because of Japan's reliance on fossil fuels. So, in this kind of context, global warming is more and more being mobilized or depicted as a threat that nuclear power can ward off. Um, The third The third uh, reason for why Japan is not going to abandon nuclear power is uh, linked with technical expertise. So again, you know, Japan was really a pioneer in terms of technological expertise around nuclear power and that echoed a kind of uh, pre-war model of Japanese spirits and Western technique, you know, that has often come throughout Japan's modernity. So For instance, the the young post-war Japanese, uh, the duty followed the adventure of Astro Boy. You know, this little Henry that was powered by a nuclear heart. Even the Japanese name of Astro Boy, which uh, is uh, Tetsuan Atom, literally means, you know, strong atom, the powerful atom. And it perfectly, for me, encapsulates this imaginary of this era uh, where nuclear power was associated also globally with domains of technological wonder, amazement, rather than with the vast emotional scars of atomic bombings. So Fukushima was a really harsh blow on this expertise and it caused the nuclear community to adopt a very pessimistic vision about the future of nuclear research. So when I was in Japan and when I spoke with scientists in the nuclear domain, uh, most of them really share the fear that they will that they couldn't be that they wouldn't be able to recruit you know future students uh, to come work in nuclear related uh, research after this disaster. So for some people, this kind of uh, this absence of Japan's technical prowess in the nuclear domain uh, is associated with a lot of negative consequence for international technological competition and innovation. Um, so, it's a kind of technological expertise that is still widely cherished by politicians. And the last reason for why Japan might not necessarily abandon uh, nuclear power is uh, in regard to international security. So, we've already talked about how this disaster created a lot of tensions in regard to international security. Um, and nowadays, you know, it's a well known fact that Japan has the capacity to nuclearize itself. Uh, the preference to create a nuclear arsenal was even supported in 1994 when the then Prime Minister Hatat Stilmu said, You know, it's certainly the case that Japan has the capability to possess nuclear weapons but has not made them. So while Fukushima was really a catastrophic heaven for Japan, it did not necessarily ease the, the tense relationship that the archipelago had with its neighbor uh, neighboring countries. You know, we can think about the, the rise of militaristic China, uh, the Senkaku Island disputes, the firing of North Korean missiles over the Sea of Japan, and so on. So those are all events that really influence Japan's national defense policy. So in this kind of context, if you have a non-nuclear Japan, well, it risk destabilizing the global the global strategic nuclear balance and the overall geopolitics of East Asia. And you know, with many neighbors becoming more and more influential, you have Japanese elites and you have proponents of the liberal international orders uh, who probably want to conserve Japan's technical ability in the nuclear domain. So, this this ability to create a nuclear bomb, if the need ever arose, can still act as a form of deterrence to ease those geopolitical tensions. And a non-nuclear Japan is something that will change the international geopolitics of East Asia. And there's a lot of factors that don't want to see this happening, uh, obviously, the United States.
0: Right, I'm, I'm very happy that you opened so many interesting questions by your answers, especially by with the geopolitical security connections, which, which I think gives tremendous opportunity for research and and for, for really curious questions. One of the questions uh, I was asked in Scotland was when Japan had that sort of nuclear ble- break in Japan from 2011 till, you know, let's say 2022. How was the, the development, the research and development in nuclear sphere? Was this also like stopped or or this sphere continued despite, you know, bad atmosphere and all those thoughts that, oh, we are in, on the top of the nuclear science and, and we had a disaster just on our territory, so so you know, because students are interested in you know what's happening behind the doors, as we say. So yeah,
1: of course, this research was not you know completely stopped. Uh, the you know the infrastructure, the teaching infrastructure, the structural infrastructure was just way too big for everything to close suddenly. What there was, however, was a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of anxiety. So, for instance, before the disaster, you know, Japan, like other countries in the world, has a lot of problem with uh, high-level nuclear waste. So, waste that comes from its power plant, you know, like other countries, they don't necessarily know what to do with it. And you know, internationally, uh, the thing to, to take care of uh, such such uh, waste is to create what they call a geological repository. So, basically, you know, burying this waste in the ground. And uh, this wasn't, for instance, a plan that was really pushed uh, a lot before the disaster. Uh, you had an organization called NUMO that was supposed to take care of that. Um, obviously, you know, the disaster kind of slowed this a little bit, but it still doesn't take care of the problem of the waste, which is you know still sitting near the nuclear power plants. So nothing was necessarily stopped per se; it was perhaps slow a little bit. But uh, it wasn't a full stop, and it's also important to say that at the same time, you know, this is a disaster that was both a curse and a blessing for the nuclear industry, because the the decommission, the the, the, decontam- the decommission of the nuclear power plant, the uh, decontamination of Fukushima were really you know high scale enterprise. That required a lot of international cooperation, that required top-notch science, top-notch expertise. So, in a way, you know, some of the actors that are partly responsible for the disaster are also going to make a lot of money in these decommissioned projects and these decontamination projects. So simply for the decommission of the nuclear power plant, I think it's impossible to envisage to envisage a non-nuclear Japan. Uh, they have some of the expertise to do so. They have the collaboration of the liberal world order. So I really don't see this as a stop for the nuclear industry in Japan. On the contrary, I think they'll be able to use this disaster for their own interests. Then we go back at the old question of who actually gets served by disaster relief and disaster
0: management,
1: which is a much more touchy question that
0: sometimes angers a lot of local citizens. And just for the interest, you know, when there is a new nuclear plan, you know, proposed in Europe or somewhere Mm -hmm. in the world, usually we have like Russians, like Rosatom is coming, South Mm -hmm. Koreans are coming that want to build, Americans are coming, they want to build it. In terms of that sort of like complete nuclear technology, is Japan able to build a nuclear plant by or with only Japanese technology or Japan was also collaborating with the world in this you know like for instance Siemens from Germany is supplying something you know maybe some different companies from America like GE because we see this collaboration in Europe like at the moment, we see the General Electric, for instance, collaborating with Russians in Hungary, which is quite surprising, you know, despite all the political tensions, because the nuclear plant is a super complex project, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like to build some sort of easy, easy project. So I'm just interested in, you know, what sort of percentage can Japan put from internal knowledge and science? Well, you
1: know, I think that this, this, you know, super complex aspects of nuclear power and this is very interesting because, you know, on the one hand, you have these tropes of, it's a Japanese-made energy. It's a, it helps to create Japanese uh, independence. But, you know, as you said, there are infrastructure that are so complex that they require whatever or not you want it, international cooperation. Uh, you know, for instance, uranium that comes from other part of the world, different parts of technologies that are made in America and so on, special lasers being created in Japan, for instance. So it's a real international endeavor, whether people want it or not. What I think will be much more harder for Japan to do is to propose the creation of new power plant on its land after Fukushima. Um, I, I, I can't see the population necessarily accepting this. Even if, you know, politicians were to propose, you know, fully Japanese technology and so forth, I think that the damage has already been done so that it might be impossible to propose new building of nuclear power plant, which will be very problematic because most of Japan's reactor are from older generation. They're already aging. Uh, most of the time their life expectancy has already been uh, has already uh, outgo the, the normal life expectancy that we were supposed to uh, to go. so I can't really see new projects being implemented on
0: Japanese soil. Exactly. and, and I, I can say I, could, I can completely agree because when you have like a natural gas uh, power plant, you stop the gas, you send the workers and within one or two months you have a land and you can build whatever else you want. But I know from my research and experience that, for instance, when you want to decompress the, the, the nuclear plant, it takes just 15 or 20 years to cool down the rods, then water, then the reactor core, you know. So I think, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm not the expert, but I think that's, that's going to be a tough question for Japan, because if you have the old reactor, it, it doesn't work that you just send like 20 workers and they will swap it for the new one. You know, so I think mm-hmm. this will open also some questions about how or what to do with the nuclear plants that, you know, has that have been decommissioned or that are basically too old to be in process mm-hmm. of delivering the electricity. But also let's speak because you are the expert or also in anthropology. From the anthropological perspective, the society in Japan before and after Fukushima.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, obviously, as an anthropologist, you know, cultural changes, you know, what we eat regularly, it's, you know, the, the thing that truly really interests us. And that's a disaster that has kind of really revitalized anthropological studies of Japan because, you know, we. We, at the beginning of this disaster, wonder, you know, you know, what kind of change is going to happen? What kind of change has already happened? And I think, you know, one of the, the biggest change that we saw in Japanese society was that it was a disaster that really tarnished the trust that citizens had toward the government. So basically before Fukushima, you had a government that always said that a disaster was impossible. They Always said, you know, a disaster cannot happen underground. We have the best technology, we have the best engineer. Uh, we're not like uh, the Soviet Union. It's impossible to have a disaster here. And after the disaster, they had a very specific word for that, which is a which means beyond expectation. So because of the smith of nuclear safety really crumbled, uh, because of the smith of nuclear safety that was prevalent before Fukushima, um, we can say that the state was uh, very much ill-prepared to manage the aftermath of a disaster. So we had, for instance, poor evacuation drill. Uh, there was a lot of problem with risk communication. There was uh, debate and controversy surrounding evacuations. You had people that were put in charge of uh, management that had no expertise on nuclear security per se. So, one of the things that the disaster really did is that it broke the safety net around nuclear power, with the Japanese call uh, Anzen Shinwa. Uh, people began to lose trust in their uh, state experts. One of the very popular words that we heard after this disaster was Goyo which can be translated as a, as a kind of lab dog scholar, scholar that is lacking independence. And one of the consequences of this is that we saw a rise in citizen science, so people, you know, everyday people that have no expertise whatsoever about uh, radiological safety, but that decided, for instance, to track radiation by themselves, to uh, measure food for radioactive contamination and so on, because they did not trust their government. Um, one of the, one of them, Another internal, internal change that we saw was uh, a change in the way through which nuclear power was regulated. So before the disaster, Japan used to be under two umbrellas. Uh, sorry, the nuclear safety was under two umbrellas. You had the Nuclear Safety Commission on one hand, which was under the authority of the Japanese cabinet and you had the Nuclear and Sewell Safety Agency, which was under the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry. But one of the problems with the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry was that it uh, used to have a very ambivalent position because it was both promoting nuclear power while serving as a safety regulator. So you know, this was a clear case of regulatory capture. Regulatory capture. So it's a position that led to a lot of, so it's a position that basically led to a culture of collusion within nuclear safety in Japan. Uh, you had senior bureaucrats, for instance, and in regulatory agency that were known to retire to uh, the private sectors and the electric companies. Uh, it's a practice that is known as amakudari, and it's literally means descent from heaven. So to change this kind of culture of collusion that was really strong in nuclear safety, uh, the government decided to get rid of the former uh, nuclear safety regulator and to create a whole new agency in 2012 that was called the Nuclear Regulation Authority. Um, you know, it's a decision that can be applauded, but we'll have to see if this new agency, is actually independent. There is a lot of scholars who have claimed that uh, this new agency, the Nuclear Regulation Authority, is more a reorganization than a significant reform because you have a lot of former employees from the two other regulatory agencies that have been moved to this new agency. So you basically have a bunch of the same people with perhaps the same culture that are now in this agency. So obviously, you know, as an anthropologist, there was a lot of change at the micro level. You know, People whose life was completely destroyed, people whose trust in the government is never going to come back. A lot of change at the local scale, lots of change when we look at the life of people, when we look at local governments and things like this. But the change at the broader structural level are still not filled. I don't see. I don't see them clearly. You no. Know, for instance, the anti-nuclear position has not succeeded after Fukushima. Uh, the Liberal Democratic power is still in power. You know, it's one of the most powerful political party. There is not another party that has come. Uh, Japan did not abandon nuclear energy. So in many aspects, uh, it still seems to me to be business as usual. And in regard to international relation, in regard to broader ownership, I think this really forces us to ask: you know, do do major shocks, you know, like economic crisis, disaster, terrorist attacks, war, and so on, lead to radical and unprecedented change within society? So there is a huge debate surrounding this this inquiry recently. You know, you have, you have uh, scholars who point out that you know disaster are too often depicted as moments that supposedly mark transition between different epochs. And you know, within my own work uh, on Fukushima, I've tried to resist this terrorizing of you know Fukushima as a fundamental game changer. Um, and there's many reasons for embracing this view. Um, I think, that first, if we describe Fukushima as a kind of unprecedented event, uh, we risk bringing a kind of uh, assumption of equilibrium prior to disaster. But if we look at Japan before 2011, Japanese society was never in a perfect state of equilibrium. Uh, you know, it was affected by an aging population, by economic torpor, by geopolitical tension, by social precarity. So if we focus on disaster as process rather than just as heaven, uh, we can see this kind of pattern of cultural continuity that emerged after a disaster. Um, So I don't necessarily see disaster as creating a kind of tabula rasa that will create, you know, unprecedented social cultural change. Um, Again, you know, there's a lot of local change that have happened after this disaster. But at the broader structural level, uh, change is also in dialogue with prior social elements. And I think that this really affects the realm of possibilities for what we mean
0: by cultural change. Do you also see a bit of pressure from international community, for instance, some inspectors coming to Japan, you know, to see what, what sort of regulations are in place, you know, what's the stage of the current nuclear plants and, and what's the situation in, in, in this sphere? Because naturally that's the question which, you know, r- arises from, from what you said.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, this you know, obviously made me think about the position that the International Atomic Energy Agency has toward Japan. Um, you know, Japan was really the poster child in regard to nuclear power after World War II. You know, from a country that was from a, a military-driven country, a dictatorship basically. That was uh, completely crushed after the after the end of World War II, uh, they were able to become the you know, second economy in the world uh, in a short, relatively short amount of time. And a lot of proponents of you know, nuclear power have said that this was also because of uh their ability to harness nuclear energy. Um, so I think there's a lot of international pressure to demonstrate that Japan will be able to recover as a nation, and not as any nation, as a nation of the liberal world order, uh, to show that, you know, capitalists, to show that democracy is able to triumph even in the aftermath of, you know, the biggest nuclear disaster possible on the event uh, scale of the IAEA. So obviously, I'm pretty sure that the international agency are facing a lot of pressure to enable Japan to get back on its feet. And you know, from where I stand, I think that they have, you know, partly succeed so far. Uh, we 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 do see a lot of discontent, for instance, regarding wastewater with you know South Korea, which is mocking IAEA, for instance, or with uh, China. So. Uh, I think this is going to put further pressure on these international organizations to you know, help Japan get back on its feet.
0: I think, I think that's a very positive news because from a research point of view, we know Japan is a slightly close country. You know, When you want to research some documents or regulations, it's not as easy as, for instance, in Europe or United States or Canada. So I think that's a very mm-hmm. positive news. Let's get to the water, the current topic. What are the implications of this act in terms of Pacific, of nature? Mm-hmm. That's the first question. And the second question coming from my students, why this water is going to be released? Is there any other way, like, for instance, one of the students said they can heat it up and you know and, and convert it to steam or something else, you know, and, and just to store mm-hmm. it somewhere. Yeah, of
1: course. So, you know, first first of all, you know, I'm not a marine, I'm not a marine biologist, so I, I can't talk about the science on the marine ecosystem. But you know, that being said, there's there's a lot of scientific uncertainty surrounding tritium. Uh there's been a lot of debates, you know, regarding the danger of tritium. And one of the problems is that there's actually few studies. That look at the health consequence of uh, tritium for human beings. Uh, There's a book that has been recently released called "Exploring Tritium Danger." So I think that this might be a better resource for your students than the viewpoint of an anthropologist on the scientific aspects of this one of the difficulty with uh, you know tritium in the wastewater is that basically tritium it's similar to a water molecule so you can separate it so if it goes in the hair tritium is always is also going to be also going to go into in the hair and one of the important thing to say is that the of decontamination does not exist per se um there's no there is no, if you want, a kind of magical powder that you can sprinkle that will get rid instantly of radioactive contamination. Um, you know, radioactive waste, for instance, they can be buried in the ground. Uh, the radioactive wastewater it can be diluted in the ocean, um, or you know, things that are contaminated can be reduced in size if you incinerate them. But none of these processes will actually stop the phenomenon of radioactivity. Uh, waste that is buried is still radioactive. The radioactive pollutants that are in the ocean are going to disperse themselves. And smer- incinerated waste is going to create radioactive ash, which also need to be managed. So the only thing that takes care of radioactivity is time. So the longer the timeline, the less radioactive certain element becomes. And this really depends on each uh, radionuclide. So you have radionuclides that have very long lifespans, you know, in millenniums, and you have other ones that are very short, basically last a few hours, a few days, and so on. Um, but this this temporal aspects of radioactive contamination, which you know often exceed human life's uh, human life, it does bring a lot of unique governance problem because there is no government of the moment that can you know manage or tackle the long one span of contamination. Um, symbolically, also, I think that the, the decision to release. Uh, wastewater in the ocean is going to be very harmful for Japan. So again, you know I can't really talk about the health implication, but in terms of symbolism, you know which is my expertise as an anthropologist, I think that it's going to be very damageable for Japan. Because since 2011, they've been working very hard to change the image of Japan, you know, from a country that faced a tremendous nuclear disaster into a country that was able to uh, become resilient, was able to overcome this disaster. So, releasing this wastewater, it really goes against a lot of the efforts that the government has uh, made to take care of their own reputation. Uh, we're already seeing what it calls in the news. You know, it's being condemned by different organizations. You've got videos of Korean people ordering salt, being concerned about uh, seafood, and so on. So, from a cultural viewpoint, I think the implications are going to be very harsh in the following years. Especially since there's tons and tons of wastewater, and this is not something that's going to be done in one day. It's going to take years, years, and even decades to release the water safely.
0: And, and do you know some details about procedure? For instance, is it known like how many liters will go to the ocean, let's say, per month?
1: Yeah, um, the Japanese government is going to give, you know, much more uh, specific details probably at the end of the summer, I think. But, you know, as you said, uh, if we look at the videos, if we look at the image, it's not merely one tank, you know. It's dozen and dozen of gigantic tanks, which hold tons and tons of wastewater. So if I'm not mistaken, I think that the release of radioactive water is going to be done on a timescale of 40 years. So we're talking about you know other generations that are going to be affected by this problem uh, it's not something that's going to be done during one weekend and no problem done it's going to take tremendous time to release this water
0: and and do we have any experience or any research that that some country already released that water to the ocean and and mm-hmm. what happened or this is or is this going to be the first time that the humanity is going to proceed with such a such act
1: on this scale, it's really the first time. That being said, there's there's a rich history of uh, nuclear waste being dumped at sea. Um, you have a really great book about this called "Poison in the Well," which precisely looks at this history of you know putting nuclear waste in the sea. And basically, even the, the scientists that were um, looking at the dispersion of relative contaminant in the sea claimed that you know monitoring in the sea was impossible. It was too big. It was too vast. It was impossible to really know where these kinds of relative where these kinds of relative pollutant will end up going. Uh, if you consider that there can be, for instance, bioaccumulation, so you know small sea life, you know, being affected by this, being eaten by and fish and so on. But what the scientists uh, did say was that, you know, just doing the monitoring per se is a kind of, you know, performative act. You know, it shows the world, it shows the population that you care, that at least you're trying to do something. Uh, but yeah, for those interested, I really recommend looking at the poison in the will, which, you know, precisely look at this issue Upon which
0: I'm, I'm not an expert. In terms of communication of the government, not only mm-hmm. about the release of the water, how would you evaluate Japanese government in terms of communication with the public and the world?
1: Mm-hmm. So yeah, basically, you know, we have the internal internal communication and also the external communication. So. Again, because of the safety net, you know, Japan was really taken by surprise uh, when the disaster happened. Uh, managing both the internal and the international communication was really a huge problem. So, in regard to uh, internal risk communication, a lot of citizens were really in their inability to obtain rapid information. Uh, For instance, citizens couldn't obtain concrete information about the disaster in a timely manner. This was often because uh, the tsunami and the earthquake had damaged the uh, instrument of the Japanese state. So this created a lot of mistrust, a lot of anger toward the government. There was also a lot of confusion surrounding the uh, evacuation orders and the radiation-related metrics. So basically, you know, the evacuation order started as a small concentric circle and then it gradually became bigger and bigger, which caused a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety for the population, which sometime had to evacuate more than one time. Um, also, a lot of the information that was given to the public you know, was done in very hard to understand numbers. So, for instance, know, well, before the disaster, you know, people had never heard about, you know, what is a sievert? What's a micro sievert? What's the difference between a myelin and micro sieverts? These were all new terms people had no idea what they meant. And you had different experts that use very different uh, units, which made communication very hard for the public. Um, a lot of people were also uh, Also, had to self assess uh, radiological risk. Uh, One of the problems that happened is that, you know, beyond the forced evacuation zone, the government also issued very specific response for residents that were within a certain uh, radius. And basically, what they told them is that you need to assess the degree of risk and then you can choose to evacuate on your own. So, a lot of people, you know, didn't understand why the government didn't give them a decision. Why did they have to make this decision by themselves when they don't know anything about radiation? Um, One of the things that really angered people when I was there was a change of results called safety standard. So one of the things that we often forgot about this disaster is that the safety standard has been changed by more than 20 times after the disaster. So basically, uh, before 2011, uh, the radiation crystal was one millisievert per year. And after the disaster, it was changed to 20 millisievert per year, so an increase by 20 times. And this was done because otherwise, uh, too much people will have to be evacuated and a lot of people will also die in evacuation. But there's a lot of people that didn't necessarily understood the rationale behind this change. For them, they just saw a standard being suddenly changed like magic. And they wonder, you know, why does radiation have suddenly become, you know, less dangerous than before? And the government uh, really fumbled in trying to explain the rationale behind this decision, which further created mistrust. Um, There was also a lot of uh, perceived adverse health effects from the disaster. So when I was in Japan, you had people that told me, for instance, that there are children experiencing nosebleed after a disaster. There's also, you know, the very controversial topic of uh, thyroid cancer for children, and these kind of you know perceive health threat. And again, you know, I'm, I'm not a scientist, I'm not saying that this is either true or false, but the population really perceive it as being linked with the disaster. And it was a sharp contrast with the government that, you know, repeatedly claimed that there was going to be no health-related effects from the disaster. And another uh, problem in international uh, communication was uh, contradicting international assessment. So, for instance, the United States advised a perimeter that was 80 kilometers for the evacuation of American citizens as opposed to 20 kilometers for the japanese government so a lot of people with whom i spoke were you know very angry i mean wondering you know why are we supposed to evacuate within 20 kilometers where while the well the american can evacuate them, uh, on a much larger scale you know again you know it's much more uh, easier to evacuate uh, the few americans that were in this area than uh, all japanese But this communication problem really created a lot of trust issue with the population.
0: From, From, From your expertise in international relations and anthropology, what do you think, how can the humanity better prepare for such disasters in the future? Is there any big lesson that we should apply or implement in those mm-hmm. plans, you know, disaster preparation, sort of simulations. How can you see the situation?
1: Yeah, I think that the current measures are wholly inefficient. You know, these kinds of simulation, this kind of exercise. For me, I see them as let's keep with business as usual. Uh, I I see them to keep the status quo in a way, and. You know, they the there are management practic- practice that really don't tackle the broader structural problems that have brought the disaster that have brought pollution in the first place. So what do we need, you know, to better prepare for catastrophe, you know, it's just it's a total rethinking of our way of life. And you know what I mean? That's that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, you know, we need to rethink how and why do we produce energy. You no, know, for instance, if we go back to Japan, you know, nuclear was not picked because it was the most safe, the most efficient or the cleanest form of energy. It was picked for a geopolitical reason of security. So we need much more sustainable values that are going to guide our choice, that are going to guide our society. Unfortunately, we are still uh, thinking in terms of energy with short-term economic needs. Uh, I think we really need to get rid of those archaic values that uh, were instilled in our energy grid. Um, you know, for instance, right now, you know, the majority of nuclear power plants in the world have emerged from military designs. Uh, so things like safety, for instance, or proper waste management, uh, these things were never important values that drove the designs of these, uh, infrastructure that drove the governance of these energy system. So what we need is a fundamental rethinking of the values of our energy system. You know, for instance, what happened if we start to think about the energy problem with with uh, waste management first and foremost? So currently our old infrastructure uh, makes waste invisible uh you know basically we can we can uh resume our whole relationship with waste uh like this so you know when my my relationship with energy and waste is mostly as a consumer I press an interrupter and light happens where did the waste go I don't know and most people don't want to know So, I think we need very different values uh, to guide where we should go as a world. Um, You know, and the the thing that really interests me is that, you know, these are not questions that are going to be answered by technological fixes nor by engineers. They are questions that our students, you know, political scientists, anthropologists, philosophers are going to answer because at the core, these are social questions. There are not questions about, you know, rate, energy, efficiency, and so on. They're really questions about the kind of values that are going to drive our world in the future.
0: Right. Yes. And also also when we speak about energy, I think we should be more demanding uh, and to ask questions like, is my energy coming from gas, wind? sustainable Mm -hmm. sources you know because who is asking those questions usually people go to some comparison website and you know this is cheaper i will sign for one year or or three Mm -hmm. years but but the concern is not there like Mm -hmm. i i I experienced this for instance in england when um, there was the conflict in ukraine and the uk was you know thinking where to take the energy from because russia was supplying natural gas to the uk and, and people were looking not for the better answers, like better sources, but better price. Because there was mm-hmm. sort of like media chaos that energy will go up like three or four times. So people started to panic and they signed for three or four years with, with the cheapest possible company available on mm-hmm. the market. So, so this, this you know, is, is also like with the food. You, know? you can eat the lowest quality and you don't care or you can eat healthy food because you care about yourself so i mm-hmm. think you know this this should be also implemented in some way to the energy the last mm-hmm. question for today's interview and then this comes from my students we have many radioactive sites in the world coming from the past usually for instance chernobyl mm-hmm. now we have fukushima we also mm-hmm. have mayak in russia and all these places you know also some places in america where they try the nuclear weapons and bombs and everything is there any international consensus how to deal with those sites or it's all under geopolitical constraints you know that this is this is our thing how we going to do it just don't don't go here and don't send any inspectors mm-hmm. because we are russia via the usa via france so we going to deal with it because you know in terms of the international community and, and global affairs, that's a global problem. It's not a problem mm-hmm. of one city or one country.
1: You know, as you said, you know, it's not a local problem. It's really everyone problem. And unfortunately, you know, one, one of the, the big problems in terms of nuclear accident is that people too often think in terms of localized accidents. Even the name of disaster, you know, it's very misleading because it reinforces localization of disaster. We think about Chernobyl, we think about Ukraine, but Chernobyl has contaminated a huge part of Europe. Even right now, you know, Finland is still very much affected by this disaster. Uh, The meat of reindeer is still very reductive, It needs to be uh, tested every year. It's the same with Fukushima. I often met, you know, Japanese citizens from other regions that were uh, still, you know, surprised that a foreigner wanted to study this disaster. They really thought that the disaster was over or that it was only in Fukushima. So, in a way, there's no such thing as a local nuclear disaster, you know, every nuclear disaster is a global disaster. Uh, Radioactive pollutants, they, they travel, they circulate through the ecosystem, through the generation also. For instance, you know, you talk about the, the tests being done in uh, Nevada, in uh, the southern part of the United States. Well, all these nuclear tests during the Cold War re- released tremendous amount of nuclear fallout, and uh, which is present everywhere. You know, bo- both you and I, we have strontium, radioactive strontium in our bones and our teeth from the release of resistive teeth during these nuclear tests, even if we were born after those tests because the lifespan of this pollution is so very long. Um, so that, that's a concern that's really complicated by the temporal aspects of radioactivity. You know, like the lifespan of radioactivity cesium, which is one of the most important pollution after nuclear disaster is 300 years. You know, that's a long time. In the meantime, you have new generation that are born. The border of countries might have drastically shifted uh, government might not be the same. So contamination will keep getting reinterpreted in the future. And regarding this kind of global regulation, I'm really failing to see proper global concern in regard to nuclear disaster. I think, you know, as 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 a society, we have been very, we have been somehow successful at raising global concern for the threat of nuclear weapons. But there's still a lot of work being to be done in conceptualizing nuclear disaster as global disaster. And I think that's, unfortunately, that's one of the heritage of the dual use of uh, nuclear energy, where bomb is seen as being bad and nuclear energy is seen as being good. And in real life, this is a dichotomy that's way too simplistic to ever work. So I think we really need to get rid of this kind of archaic mentality, this kind of archaic heritage. If we ever want to be able to have proper world regulation that are as much as independent as possible, or that can bring at least some sort of global awareness, instead of saying, well, this is a Japanese problem, this is an Ukrainian problem.
0: Maxim, thank you very much for your insightful thoughts, your time and enthusiasm to explain this very difficult topic to our students and audience. And uh, I think we have to think about it, especially nowadays, when we have on one hand the water from Fukushima going to the ocean, on the other hand we have some sort of decision-making process if the nuclear tactical weapons are going to be used in Ukraine or not. And on the third hand, we have those people arguing who has more nuclear weapons, if Russia or the United States, but we should ask a simple question. How many of those bombs or those disasters do we need to destroy ourselves? And I think mm. this is what should you know, prompt us to think about nuclear energy much deeper, not only as a security geopolitical, implications but also health and humanity implications. Maxim, thank you again for your time. I wish you good luck with your research and with your articles and activities that you're doing globally. Thank you again for joining us.
1: wise, Wise word to end this discussion. Thank you very much.
0: See you next time.